The Quiet Mind membership is now open for the fall enrollment period. It's over at quietmind.yoga membership. I'm super excited. We've already got some amazing people joining in this new enrollment period. And there's 80 plus classes on there, videos of Hatha, Vinyasa, Yin, meditation, gentle yoga, and more and more being added every week. Soon to have some restorative yoga. There's some yoga nidra on there. So all your yoga needs are there. And I've actually added a new teacher starting this fall season. Uh, and you can join us live on these classes on Zoom. Even if you're not a member, you can donate at quietmind.yoga and check out the live classes. But if you want to access the archives of all these recordings, that's Quiet Mind membership. And it's only open once a quarter for a week so that we can all join in together and start the new season together. We're going to be talking a lot about Ayurveda over these next few months sister science of yoga, which I love talking about daily routines, knowing your dosha, your tendencies, what kind of diets, habits, yoga, meditation are optimal for you. So every month we have a new theme, a new focus. So you can check it all out at membership while the enrollment is open right now. Today, I'm very excited to share all about mindfulness. So in the Quiet Mind Yoga Teacher Training, which is already happening, that enrollment is closed. So we've got an amazing group in there. We're studying mindfulness this week. And I just want to share a couple big insights from this lesson because, you know, just the, the word mindfulness is so overused, I think, at this point. There's like mindful parenting, mindful eating, mindful walking. It's just kind of this buzzword that's lost a lot of its meaning. So what does it really mean? And there's some fascinating stuff. There's some really, really cool neuroscience research I'm going to share. Some really cool insights into the origins of this word and what it means in relation to yoga history and the philosophy of yoga. And then some very simple, practical ways we can practice mindfulness. And you can actually change your brain within 15 minutes. A single practice, even if someone who's completely new, can change the expression of their genes Right? And if, even me growing up, like I'm 34 now. So I remember growing up, like thinking that genes were fixed, like, oh, it's just a genetic thing. Like, okay, you know, my, my mom was this way, my grandma was this way, so I'm going to be this way. And that's that sort of fixed mindset of thinking that things are just this way and that's who I am. And if I have an issue, well, you know, it's just my genetics. And we can actually change the expression of genes over time. And this is a fairly recent discovery. And it's fairly recent also to know that we can actually change the shape and the structure of the brain. So uh, not necessarily like the shape of our heads and our skulls, but the neural pathways, the neural connections in the brain, that can be changed. And that used to be th thought that it was like fixed, like, okay, you're just this way, you're, you're smart or you're dumb, and you're this way or that way, you're nice or you're mean. Uh, but these things can be changed and new neural pathways can be made. And in the yoga philosophy, this is validated too. All right, so I'll kind of go into that, uh, talking about samskaras and how uh, these patterns that we are cultivated in childhood and experience, but they can be changed. So really fun, interesting stuff. And I want to just start this episode sharing, just like I do in the teacher training, this quote from the Kata Upanishad, because I like to always go back to the origins, the roots, the foundation of yoga, and then add it to modern science, modern research, what we understand now and find the overlap. And there's just more and more overlap. And there's just so much fun, interesting stuff in this lesson and the training that I can't get into all of it here. It'll just take forever. Uh, there's a 20 page handout for this lesson in particular. 
But the Kata Upanishad sort of sums it all up in what mindfulness is. It says, the unwavering steadiness of the senses they understand as yoga. Then one becomes vigilant, for yoga can be gained and lost. So the unwavering steadiness of the senses is yoga. Or, in the Yoga Sutra, uh, written about 400 years later or so, it says, Yoga chitta vritti nirodaha. Yoga is the stilling of the fluctuations of the mind. Then the seer can abide in its true self and we can become aware of our thoughts and our tendencies. But here in the Kata Upanishad, it's saying that this steadiness of the senses, this clarity of mind, this presence, this is yoga. But once we've experienced that, and I'm sure you've experienced it if you're listening to this podcast, you went to a class and you're like, oh, wow, I feel clear, I feel open, I feel less tense, I feel my mind is clear, my body feels better. This moment of yoga, it's a, it's a sort of state experience, but it can become more of a stage experience. As uh, one of my teachers would say, there's these sort of states that we have, there's sort of high moments or these really uh, inspiring sort of breakthrough moments, uh, but they can just kind of come and go and be very impermanent. And everything's impermanent, but these, these states can kind of uh, flicker out really quickly and then we go back to everything the way it was. But it can also become a stage where now we have this moment of mindfulness and now we're mindful about the way we communicate and what we eat and what we watch and consume and what we buy and what we don't buy. And it becomes this new whole expression of ourselves. And this is kind of what I, what I take from this Kata Upanishad is, so once you've experienced yoga, then our practice is to become vigilant because it comes and goes and we can gain it or lose it. And by vigilant, I interpret that as more of just being mindful, right? We can be sort of uh, very strict and rigid about it, but that's not yoga. And vigilance sometimes has those connotations of being very vigilant, focused, driven. It has to be this way. Not necessarily, right? That becomes too rigid, too stiff, and uh, too brittle, right? So we want to be flexible, of course, as yogis. And uh, this, instead of vigilance, we could say mindful. So where does this word mindfulness come from? Well, if you go back, you probably see in Buddhist teaching, there's this practice of right mindfulness. And that's where a lot of the modern teachers reference back to right mindfulness, this quality of being present, non-judgmental, being engaged in what we're doing being aware of our breath, our bodies, our feelings, our thoughts, as best we can in any activity we're doing. Which could be sitting in meditation, noticing the breath, could be gardening, could be taking a walk. We can do mindfulness anywhere, any moment. So that's one of the real superpowers of this practice, is we can do it anywhere, anytime. But if we go back to where that phrase, that exact word comes from, it's not the most exact translation or understanding or interpretation of the Pali word that was used in Buddhism, which is sati. Sati is sort of remembrance. It's mindfulness in a way. It's, it's, a, it's a way to describe it. It's also remembering the main teachings and texts of Buddhism, remembering the lessons that the student has learned in everything that we do. And where does that come from, sati? Well, sat, sat in, uh, you've probably heard the word sat, like sat nam is a mantra. Uh, sat means truth, or satya is practicing truthfulness, the Sanskrit word sat. Uh, so Pali, Sanskrit have a lot of overlap, so I think that might be the etymology of sati. 
But the word actually was a version of smrti. So this was really actually something I just learned this week and doing extra research for this lesson. And I'm amazed that I didn't see this before. I was looking at, okay, where does mindfulness really come from? Uh, and the fun thing about the internet is it keeps growing and expanding. So more resources keep becoming available. So every time I do this teacher training, I learn new things too, because there's new resources available. So I learned that mindfulness comes from the Pali word sati, which comes from the Sanskrit word smirti, which means to remember and to be mindful in what we're doing. It's almost the same definition, but it's juxtaposed with shruti. And as I taught my students in the training, the shruti wisdom is the received wisdom by the rishis, the people in society who their whole life purpose was to go out and listen and receive wisdom. And, you know, there's a lot of stories. Maybe these people lived hundreds of years and uh, maybe they weren't necessarily just people. There's, there's a lot of possible understandings of this, but I, I think in the most sort of grounded practical sense, there are people just like you and me, but they decided to dedicate their life to being channels of wisdom, to sit in stillness and silence and receive intuitions and insights, and to try to not cloud that with distractions or seeking pleasure or avoiding pain, as many of us do as humans, it's just normal part of the process. But the Rishis would just sit in meditation and just listen and try to receive wisdom and insight. And what they shared was the Vedas. And if you study the Vedas, they're extremely complex and intricate patterns of rhyme and rhythm. Uh, they're, they're the authoritative source text for all Vedic teachings, all Hinduism, Vedanta, Samkhya philosophy, yoga philosophy. And of course, you, those of you in the teacher training, you know all these terms, but if you're not familiar with them, essentially it's the source of yoga philosophy. So the Shruti wisdom, these channeled, received phrases, concepts, ideas, which if you don't know anything about this, it shows up in yoga classes whenever you hear someone talk about the koshas, the energy layers of awareness of the body. We talk about Om. Everybody knows the word Om at this point. That's from the Upanishads. So the Vedas and Upanishads are the only two texts that are definitively considered Shruti wisdom. It's received wisdom from people in deep meditation. And I believe that we all have at least a little bit of access to some sort of received wisdom like this, right? When you get still and you sit and you listen, you kind of clear away the clutter and distractions and become more of a channel and vessel for what wants to come through you, there's a still quiet voice within that says, go this way, don't go that way, or don't say this, or wait, right? It's not, now is not the time to make the decision, just wait, right? That's, that's that still quiet voice, but the, the louder ego is often like, I've got to do this now, this person said this thing, that person said that thing, I should do this, I've got to live up to this role, this responsibility, this title, this is who I am, this is what matters, and that you see it like really exaggerated in politics when people get very vehemently uh, defined in their roles of opposition against something else. And there are times when we need that and we need to make decisions and there are polarity, there is polarity in the world. There are 
uh, opposing beliefs, imposing thoughts and actions that need to be considered. But underneath all of that, there's this deep interconnectedness of in a million years, none of that stuff will matter. And billions of years ago, none of this stuff mattered, of course. Even hundreds of years ago, none of this stuff mattered. Uh, so what is the thing underneath all of this, right? We're spiritual beings here having a human experience. We're the exact same carbon atoms as each other, as everything else. It's just carbon atoms expressing with different personalities and identities in ahamkara, the ego. Uh, but underneath all of that, what's what's left? And that's what we tune into in Shruti Wisdom. And I believe everybody can access that. Even if you don't spend your whole life meditating, maybe just for a moment, maybe just once, maybe regularly, maybe every morning you get up and meditate and you have these sort of intuitions and insights that feel very clear and pure, very sattvic. So they're not rajasic, not trying to chase things and get all these things done. They're not tamasic, not trying to avoid things and protect ourselves, but it's sattvic. It's just this pure, clear intuition. And I believe we can access that. Uh, but that's the Shruti wisdom as juxtaposed to the Smriti wisdom. So the Vedas and Upanishads are Shruti, the source text of yoga. And that's again what I quoted, the unwavering steadiness of the senses is yoga. Then one becomes vigilant for yoga can be gained and lost. That's from the Upanishads. That's received wisdom. And then there's the Smriti, which is like the Bhagavad Gita, which is like a story that sort of exemplifies these teachings and the yoga sutra which is a compilation and sort of interpretation of a bunch of different teachings up to that point and so on and there's the brahma sutra and all these other texts and the hatha yoga pradipika so these future texts that are remembered wisdom so they're not completely received and channeled but they are applying what we've learned from our teachers, remembering what we've learned, and applying it and integrating it into a new perspective. And that's what we're doing in mindfulness all the time. So long-winded uh, roundabout way to say that what we're doing when we're practicing mindfulness is not just being present, non-judgmental and open and aware of what we're doing, but we also want to remember these Shruti teachings. Now, if that doesn't resonate with you, great. Maybe you like Zen philosophy, or I love Taoism myself. I, I remember those frequently throughout my day. The quotes are just sort of embedded in my brain at this point. Um, one of my favorites is, uh, like, I am like an idiot. My mind is so clear. <laughs> For some reason, that always makes me happy and uh, reminds me to not take things too seriously. That's like, I'm an idiot. I'm, my mind is so clear from the Tao Te Ching, right? So that is would not be considered Shruti wisdom, but it feels resonant and true in my soul, in my spirit, and my essence. Like, yes, that feels right. And I laugh every time I think about it because uh, it brings me the sense of joy and inner peace and contentment. So you might have some sort of, you know, quote from... Uh, Cardi B, who knows, right? It's some random quote that you heard at some point. It's like, that's, yes, like that resonates. That feels true to me. And the only reason that that ever happens is because there's this inner part of us that just knows this Shruti wisdom within us. And the only reason any quote has ever resonated with you or any teacher has ever resonated is because you're saying something that you know to be true in your essence. 
And uh, those things are the things we want to remember. But if you want to take this to the more literal interpretation, memorizing things from the Upanishads and the Vedas, uh, things like the Gayatri Mantra from the Vedas, different mantras from the Vedas, are these are powerful things to uh, integrate into our thought patterns. So we replace those negative thoughts, those judgments, those fears, those concerns, worries, doubts, and choose to come back to these. I mean, throughout the Upanishads, it talks about how when we remember who we truly are, all fear fades away and all grief fades away. And we can just be present and joyful in the present moment. That's mindfulness, right? That's applying that brings this sense of mindfulness and presence and engagement, non-judgmental quality. Now, talking about the brain science of things, what's happening when we go into those fear, worry, doubt, anxiety, different parts of the brain are lighting up and activating. And really cool, fascinating research when they take these meditators, these monks who've done 50,000 plus hours of meditation, like their whole life, that's all they've done is sit in meditation, just like the Rishis. And it shows the different brain activity than the average person. And they have more activity in the prefrontal cortex. That's the more most evolved part of the brain, the newest part of the brain from an evolutionary standpoint. And less activity in the brain stem and the limbic system, which are the reptile brain and the mammal brain, which are They've been around longer and those are less new developments. Uh, but they also have this different brain activity. So we can measure brain waves and there are five different brain waves. And for the average person, most of us are in the first four brain waves. So delta, deep sleep, theta brain waves, meditation, light sleep, alpha brain waves, meditation, presence, creativity, and then the beta brain waves is where most of us spend most of the time. Like right now, you're probably in beta brain waves. You're thinking, you're probably doing some sort of activity that requires cognitive skill and concentration and alertness. That's the beta brain waves. But above that, at a higher frequency, is the gamma brain waves. This is like insight or this complete immersed presence. Like when you bite into an apple and you feel the, the crispness and the sweetness and the wetness of the water and the smells and the sounds and everything is just fully present and all you're doing in that moment is just biting the apple and there's nothing else in the world for that moment. That's full presence. That's the gamma brainwaves and the really fascinating things is these advanced meditators could stay in those gamma brainwaves all the time throughout several hours of sitting in this scanner, being subjected to these different tests, sort of challenging them to show them disturbing images, to try to throw them off to see if different parts of their brain will activate. And they do, but way smaller scale than the average person, though much less reactive. And they can stay in the gamma brainwaves much longer. And for them, it's very visible and easy for the scientists to measure and see them but for the average person, uh, it's very difficult to measure the brain activity in general, uh, relatively difficult, uh, but then to see the gamma brainwaves is pretty rare. And we might see that for a moment, like when there's an insight or breakthrough, uh, but then back down to the beta brainwaves. So this is where like Alan Watts, one of my first teachers I would listen to, I listened to everything I could by Alan Watts. I just loved his stuff. 
years ago before I, like I was into philosophy and then Alan Watts was my gateway to spirituality because he was talking about philosophy, but now he was integrating all this spiritual stuff really got my attention. And he said, uh, there's this sort of idea of like asking a monk, well, what's enlightenment like? And the monk would say, well, it's just like everyday ordinary experience, only three inches off the ground. And there's these metaphors all throughout when people talk about meditation and spirituality, this idea of transcendence, liberation, of moksha, which means transcendence and liberation, and sort of samadhi, this equanimity, this presence. And in many cases, it's this elevation, this going up rather than going down or any other direction. And that's, and people talk about like raising their frequency, raise your vibration. Right? And it's literally what is shown by the neuroscience. The delta brain waves are very slow, theta a little faster. Right? It goes from like 0.5 hertz, very slow, delta brain waves. So gamma brain waves are like 32 to 100 hertz. So very fast brain waves, fast activity. Now that doesn't mean scattered, anxious, manic. Right? You might think faster is bad in some way. Uh, but it's just more information is coming in. Right? Everything is being perceived. There's nothing missed. Whereas in delta brainwaves, that's when we're like in deep sleep and like in a coma and our bodies are actually paralyzed. Like we can't actually move our bodies because uh, our body just goes into that deep state of sleep to uh, beyond dreams, right? We're just, just still and not doing anything, just kind of doing the base uh, maintenance processes for our bodies. So that's delta, but then gamma is like this incredible presence and immersion. So the advanced meditators can live there, but now here's the real fascinating, cool thing is the average person, if you know somebody who's never meditated or if you've tried to meditate, it's like, I don't know. Uh, the, the average person can change their brain activity within a single 15 minute session of mindfulness breathing. So just noticing your breath, not judging it, and when your mind wanders, that's inevitable. Your mind will wander. It's not if, but when. And then you choose to bring your attention back to the breath. And you just notice again, okay, I notice I'm breathing. I notice there's a cool sensation on my arms. Right? It's just non-judgmental, no story, not going into the past or future, just being present with what's there. That's mindfulness. And in that single session, they've shown that people's amygdala, the fear center, the aggression and fear center of the brain, which is getting bombarded all the time by the news and media and all these things that want our attention. And uh, if you've experienced trauma, stress, just having the average life, where the amygdala is uh, that part of us that gets worried, afraid, and aggressive to protect ourselves, that gets smaller in meditators. And it, there's less gray matter there and then more gray matter in the frontal cortex, which is our more evolved sort of perceiving, uh, conceptualizing, philosophizing, idealizing, sort of seeing the bigger picture of things gets more activity. Over time, that is significant, but even in a single session, it can be noticeable. So there is hope for you if you've tried to meditate and you're like, I don't know, or if you, you know people who are like, I can't meditate, uh, just focus on the breath, 
just come back to the breath. It's it gets it's very simple, uh, but not easy. And it gets easier over time. And you can use different tools. You find what works for you. So in the source text, they say for the average person who has no experience and is a very difficult time with all this stuff that I'm talking about, mantra meditation is the way to go. And that will help you create this state of yoga, this presence, this engagement. And that we know neurologically elevate the brain waves to a higher frequency of activity. Now, sometimes uh, lower is better. Like alpha brain waves are fantastic for creativity, right? We don't want as much of the gamma brain waves in that necessarily. Or the theta brain waves, when we want to sleep, we want to go into those deeper states. So it's not like uh, higher is always better. But if we want to practice mindfulness and live fully present and engaged, uh, it's it's fascinating to see that's where the, the people who've dedicated their lives to that live and experience life from. So again, the, the amygdala can shrink. It can get less uh, neurological connections, so less neural pathways to the amygdala. So when I hear a, a loud clang outside, maybe I've got it wired into my brain that that means danger. So the amygdala lights up and now I'm afraid and now I'm worried. Uh, but I could also get to a place where I know, okay, there's a loud clang outside. I can respond to it if I need to, uh, but I'm not going to become tense and worried and afraid and then reactive uh, necessarily. I'm, I'm going to choose, okay, well, what needs to happen? Do I need to like clean up something? Did something happen? How can I address this? And that's from more of the prefrontal cortex. And it's not saying emotion is bad and we should just like transcend, bypass all emotions, right? And this is where it gets tricky for people because maybe somebody hasn't spent their whole life meditating and they've had a lot of difficult experiences. And it's very important as a human being to be validated and heard in our experiences. And the emotional center, the limbic center needs to be seen and validated. So that's a completely different process and the practice of mindfulness to maybe you can be in those uh, more elevated brain states, more mindful. But if your friend or your partner or someone you're talking to is in the more reactive state and their amygdala is activated and they're afraid, it's not going to help them to say, oh, you know, just use your prefrontal cortex. Just think about it this way. Here's an idea I learned, right? You're using different parts of your brain to connect. And that's disconnecting, of course. So we've got to, as meditators and being mindful of our communication, our relationships, meet people where they're at and connect with where they're at. And, and know that everybody's going to be in a different place every day. And as yoga teachers, this is where teaching in a way that is very, very inclusive and gives lots of people lots of options to listen to their body is very important. As you've heard, if you listen to my yoga podcast or practice with me or in the membership, I'm always giving options. Maybe you feel like this today. Maybe you want to do this today. You can always do more or less. And I always give options for that. And you don't know where people are starting at, but when we're teaching like a general all levels yoga class to the public, that's how we can make it more inclusive and give people different options for where they're at that day. But in our one-to-one -one relationships, when we're actually interacting with people, right, we can't just try to be in this higher, more enlightened samadhi state 
uh, and just talk down to people, right? That's where this phrase is like talk down to people. We don't want to do that, right? We want to meet people where they're at and validate their emotions. And this is something the advanced meditators can do very well, actually, is they have compassion and loving kindness. So the parts of their brain related to compassion and kindness and generosity can also be well activated in engagement with others. So they're not just talking down to people or philosophizing to them or telling them, you know, just see it my way and, you know, using the prefrontal cortex to engage with the amygdala. So that's mindful relationships, right? So we can apply mindfulness, again, everywhere in our lives, but it's not just this buzzword or this catchphrase or this cool thing to do, but it's remembering the source text and teachings of where all this stuff comes from and embodying the spirit of that. And again, as they're all throughout the Upanishads. So when we remember who we truly are, all fear fades away, all grief fades away. We come from a place of living in our hearts rather than our heads. The size of a thumb, small inside the heart, as they say many times throughout the Upanishads. So study these teachings, get a copy of the Upanishads, uh, start chanting some Vedic mantras from the Vedas, like the Gayatri Mantra. If it resonates with you, maybe you like, oh, no, no, I'm not interested in that. But check out like the Tao Te Ching or maybe you like Confucianism or some other philosophy or Hinduism or Buddhism, whatever it is. Going back to the source text, what are your source texts? What are the teachings that inform who you are? Is it just stuff you learned at school or on the news or read in the book? Or is there a certain pathway that really resonates with you? Is it religion? Is it spirituality? I think all paths have something valid and interesting to offer, and we can choose to find the things that resonate most with us and find our own unique path. And you might disagree with that, and you might think, well, this path is the right way. And that's totally valid too, right? If so, million, so many millions of people can say that their path is the one right path, that to me says that there are many possible paths. It's like uh, so many possible diets, and so many people say this diet is the one right diet. Well, the human species has shown that we're obviously omnivores. And I think it's the same is true for our beliefs and ideals and uh, whatever we define truth as. Right, it's a very personal definition of that. But what is irrefutable? What can we come back to over and over again? Right? When we live from a place of compassion and heart-centered uh, kindness to others and love to others, what happens in the world? Right? And when we don't live from compassion, when we live from pushing others away, what happens in the world? When we're not mindful, what happens in our lives? And that is probably the best way you can decide what path you want to follow. When you apply these teachings, what happens? When you apply those teachings, what happens? How do you feel? Who do you become? What are your conversations like? Do you become more hostile or more connected? Right? And Maybe you want to aim towards the ones where life kind of goes a little better when you follow that path. And again, the Tao Te Ching is one for me. The Upanishads are another. Alan Watts' teachings I love. Uh, find what works for you. And I hope this helps you give a little insight into your mindfulness practices. And uh, next week in the teacher training, we're talking all about meditation techniques. So here on the podcast, I'll share a little bit about meditation techniques, the specific ways to apply this. And of course, if you want to join the teacher training, the next one opens in March 2021. But right now, you can work with me a lot more in depth because every week there are six new classes now. So six classes a week now on the Quiet Mind membership. 
can join us live by donation. You don't have to join the membership. But if you join the membership, you get access to all the recordings. Now there's 80 plus recordings in there in all the different styles of yoga. This past month, we've been exploring the Upanishads through our practices. Next month, Ayurveda. So if you want to learn the core competencies of yoga, I teach in depth with uh, classes each week, monthly themes. That's the membership. And if you want to go to the next level, even more in depth with thorough manuals, trainings, and a 200 hour training, that's the teacher training coming up in March. Uh, but for now, check out quietmind.yoga/membership and see if it resonates with you. And if you resonated and enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. And thank you for listening. I hope you have a great rest of your day.